welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to consider on this Thanksgiving Sunday the eternality of God in a special message. And I'm going to be reading from many texts. It's a textual message where we're going to be, or topical rather, where we're going to be throughout the Word of God. But there are two landmark texts, in one in the old and one in the new, that talk about the eternal nature of God. I'll read both of them for you. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. And then also Jude 24 and 25. So let us hear the word of God together this morning. Moses, in his prayer, said this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you would form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting You are God. And Jude, in our New Testament, in his wonderful doxology to the believers, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the majesty of your word. We thank you that it reveals to us things we would never imagine, nor could we fully understand in our limitations, in our sinfulness, in our Uh, limited humanity. But the Word of God reveals mighty things about who you are, and your eternality is one of them. No preacher could invent what I'm going to tell this people, and no preacher can begin to do justice to how great your eternality is. But I pray that you will uh, take the Word of God and open it Break it upon our new minds in Christ and show us great and mighty things about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I am continuing a Thanksgiving tradition if you've been with us for a few years. I I started this three, four years ago, I think, where uh, I set aside Thanksgiving Sunday as a time to to reflect in Thanksgiving over an aspect of who God is that's carrying me in these days. For these days are darkening. And uh, I've I've spoken over the years about uh, the unchanging nature of God and and, uh, his truthfulness and other qualities of who he is things that I'm holding on to more and more. And I want to bless you this morning through some some meditations in the word that are carrying me in these days. You know, uh, fleeting comforts are, have you noticed they're more fleeting in these days? I tell you. And that's why I'm driven by the Holy Spirit to find my comfort more in the unchanging God. Also, Uh, Times are worsening. I can say that now that I've been around a while. If I was a little younger, you might just put me off and say, you don't know anything. Well, I've been around a few decades, and I've got a few uh, experiences over my shoulder, and I see things in certain ways worsening, at least in this era of time. Maybe they'll improve. They've improved in the past, but in times of worsening troubles, I want to go to the rising truths about the greatness of God who doesn't change 
and uh, who is infinite and perfect. That's where I'm gaining my comfort these days. And I wanted to, to go to a subject that I've touched on in the past with you, but as Peter said to his people often, oh, it bears repeating. The Spirit leads me to bring it to you again. And that's the eternal nature of God. The eternal nature of God. Why I'm thankful for it. What it means. I want to do a little bit of uh, theological preaching, if you will, and talk about that quality of who God is from many different places in the Bible. It's a doctrine that you gain through observation. You, you see different texts in the Bible illustrated and build it out for you the more you read the Word of God. This unusual quality, unique to God, is the fact that He is eternal. Now, you might brush it off for a moment and say, well, I already knew that. Oh, you know nothing of it. It is, it is an unfathomable quality to God. More about that in a minute. But let me just kind of get you going in terms of your biblical mind today. Uh, I've told you, I think, in the past about my very first seminary assignment. When you get to seminary, uh, they put you into some basic courses in your, in your first year. Uh, we had Genesis, Revelation. So we got the, book, the bookends of the Bible, I remember. That was the first required class. And then there was another class called hermeneutics. That's not about an ancient Old Testament figure named the prophet Herman. No, it's about <laughs> the art and the science of biblical interpretation, how to understand the text, what its original meaning was, and how to explain and apply that meaning to God's people. It's essential to preaching. And uh, I remember the very first day in hermeneutics class, it was taught by Dr. James Roscup, who I, I believe uh, um, may now be with the Lord, I'm not sure. Uh, wonderful man of God. And uh, Dr. Roscup, double doctorates, I think, from Dallas Seminary. Um, mighty man of God, but humble. And he got up in front of the class. Bear, bear in mind, I'd never been to a Bible college. You know, I'd had a, I'd had a secular college education. And uh, I'd never been to a Bible college. And so um, all of this was very, very new to me. And when I, when I sat in there, I was surrounded by guys that had a lot more under their belt biblically than I did. So uh, he gave our first assignment, and uh, it, it was one that I thought even I could handle. He said, now this is what I'm going to ask you to do. He had written a, 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 a text on, the, black, on the, the whiteboard or the blackboard. This is before whiteboards. Shows you how old I am. No, thank No, was there a whiteboard, Lord? I think there was. But I can't be sure. So yeah, there must have been a blackboard. He wrote a text. And then he says, your assignment after this class is to spend as much time as you can in this one text observing everything about it. Everything about it. And I want you to write down all your observations. Spend as much time as you can on this text and bring me back all your observations. And it was a one-verse text, and I thought, well, as, and it was a New Testament text. I thought, I, I know enough to do this. And so I sat down in my little, little desk in uh, my house and just started to go through it. And I, I was pretty proud of myself because after an hour or two, I had come up with three pages of observations. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Thank you. So I come back to class next Monday, and I sit down, and, and I've got my three pages. And then the guy that was sitting next to me walks in. He needed a box <laughs> to carry his observation. More than three, I'll just go more than three pages. If there's any consolation, his name is Clint Arnold, and he went on to become the dean of the New Testament department <laughs> at the same seminary. So I feel <sighs> okay about that. So he hands his in, and then at the end of class, Dr. Roscup passes out his. You needed a forklift. <laughs> so um, it was a humbling experience. It showed me that there's virtually no bottom to the Bible in terms of what you can see under the Holy Spirit's teaching if you have a sincere heart and mind. Well, I want to give you a little bit of the same seminary assignment today, and I'm going to give you one text one verse from the Old Testament. 
I want to give you Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So get your Bibles. Oh, wait a minute. Some of you guys didn't bring your Bible to class, did you? Okay, let me have to write that down. No. Grab a Bible, tune it up on your little handheld device, what have you. Go to your memory and go to Genesis 1.1, which reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm not going to make you spend an hour meditating on that verse, although you could do it as, as on, after you get home today. But I just want to ask you one observational question. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's your question. What do you observe about God and beginnings in that verse? Don't say anything out loud. What do you observe about God and beginnings in that verse? Hopefully, one answer you have is this. When it comes to God and beginnings, God didn't have one. Can you see it? In the beginning of the context of time and space and matter and the process of time itself, in the beginning, God, right? Had no beginning, had no origin point. So the big observation from Genesis 1-1 is when you observe God in beginnings, your conclusion is he didn't have one, which means he is eternal. I just read to you from the scriptures that he stands above time. He's not limited by time. He didn't begin in time, and he will not end or, or fi finish his existence as time ends. God is distinct. He's eternal. He had no beginning. We're going to talk a little bit about why that's important in this message. Or as Jude 25 said, he existed, exists back in, in, in the prior time, he exists now, and he exists into the future. All glory be to God. He receives glory in all three stanzas of, of time itself. In other words, God's timeless. Now, usually when we use the word timeless, we mean, okay, it, 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 it will be here forever. It won't age. What a timeless truth, we might say, or it's a timeless idea. No, timeless to us means it doesn't change or it'll always be relevant. That's not what timeless means with God. It means time has no impact upon him. He's not trapped within it and he's not limited by it. He's timeless. The eternality of God, it's really one of his most puzzling but comforting qualities. When you think about it, we're going to touch on that today. We're going to go through some different scriptures, and, and I want to give you two distinct qualities in a few minutes about the eternal God that I draw from the scriptures and I hope will impact your life. And all of this is really based on observation, just like the Genesis 1-1 study. We, we, we cannot imagine or understand the eternal, timeless God because we're time-bound people. This is revealed truth from the Word of God this morning. Before I get to the two qualities of what the eternal God is like, we need to define this a little bit. And as I've said in the past, when it comes to, to sublime truths, I go to minds far better equipped than mine. And I'm going to quote some theologians here, as I've done it in the past, who are uh, trying to take the sublime and put it into some words that begin to capture it. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary in his, uh, in his theology says this, the attribute of eternity means that God exists endlessly. His existence extends endlessly backward and forward from our viewpoint of time without any interruption or limitation caused by succession of events. See, that's a little dense. Well, I'm going to get denser for you. Hang on, this is going to be good. Dr. Louis Burkhoff from Calvin Theological Seminary, years ago in his famous theology, defined eternity as that perfection of God 
whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. Keep going, you say. Okay, I will. Dr. Wayne Grudem, a more recent theological writer uh, who taught at, at Phoenix, Phoenix Theological Seminary in his basic theology, I think it's called, says this, God's eternity can be defined as follows. God has no beginning, no end, and, or succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. And finally, Dr. Henry Thiessen in the first theology I studied in my seminary career, who taught at Wheaton College. He's with the Lord now. He said, God is infinite in relation to time. He's without beginning or end. He's free from all succession of time, and he is the cause of time. So there, there are some great orbiting minds. This is a, a mighty understanding of who God is, and it it bears endless description, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting that each of these definitions adds but then circles the truth? So that's the sublime. That's the, 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 the top shelf of theological thinking about this great quality. But I'm always more attracted to the simple. And uh, let me go to a different mind who put it in uh, high school language. Although... He, he, he had a mind that went far above just where high school was. Um, he was a high school dropout. He didn't have a doctorate. He didn't have a high school diploma. But he wrote a couple of the greatest books that maybe you have in your own library about the qualities of God. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he also wrote another shorter work, A Short Theology of the Attributes of God. His name was A.W. Tozer. Oh, you do have his books. What are you doing reading a high school dropout? <laughs> Maybe because what he did was he didn't think he was learning enough in public school, so he left school, went up to the attic of his parents' house, began to bring books home from the public library, and educated himself into incredible influence. Went on to become a great Bible teacher and conference pastor and wrote these books because he was face down in that study in prayer and meditation with that open Bible before him, and he discovered God afresh from the text. A.W. Tozer. He put it in simpler words. The eternality of God, what did it mean to him? Listen to this. In God there is no was or will be, but a continuous and unbroken is. I like that. Now you're down in my, now you're in my neighborhood. Dr. Thiessen, Dr. Burkhoff, in God, Tozer wrote, there is no was or will be, but a continuous and unbroken is. Right? For after all, Tozer wrote, God said that he is the I am, not the I was. <laughs> he says, even though most of his children don't live like this is true. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? We're always believing God is not the same God that he used to be. In either in the theological greats of your Bible or maybe even at different times in your life. He's not the same God that delivered you then. He can't take it now. Oh no, Tozer said, he himself said, I am, he is the I am, not the I was. In God there is no was or will be, but a continuous and unbroken is. Eternity is God's signature. It's who he is, Tozer wrote. Well, so that's just a, that's just a baseline for us. Let me build out of those explanations and now go to some scriptures and give you two ideas today. The first is that the eternal God is without beginning or end, because that's what each of those experts said, isn't that true? He has no beginning and no end. In Tozer's words, in God there is no was or will be, but a continuous and unbroken is. And then the second idea is that he is outside time. Remember, they all said he's not influenced or trapped by the succession of events but he can also work within it. They all said that. So those are two truths that I'm going to build out this morning. We're going to take a look at each truth. We're going to answer three questions. Number one, where does the scripture teach it? And there's where I'm going to go into some of these texts with you. Second is, what does it mean, just kind of in a, 
a clearer explanation, perhaps. And finally, the third question under each of these is, why does it matter? Or why should I be thankful for this on a Thanksgiving weekend? I could put it in that way. So the first thing that all of these definitions by these minds and all of the gathered Bible texts seem to tell us is that the eternal God is without beginning or end. The eternal God is without beginning or end. In God there is no was or will be, but a continuous and unbroken is. Let's, let's go into that together. First question was, where does the scripture say it? And I've read to you one of the passages already, but we'll go back to Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. I remember where I memorized this. I was being discipled as a young believer by the college pastor at Grace Brethren Church, Long Beach, California. I was a student at Cal State Long Beach. Like I said, this was... I mean, totally secular background, and and he discipled me by having me memorize scripture. And I remember standing outside the library at Cal State Long Beach, right that right outside the front entrance. I can see Pastor J. Bell clear as day, saying, "Do you have your do you have your scripture ready?" He would always first time he saw me every Monday, before we got into anything else. Give me your text, Psalm ninety verses one and two. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations, Moses. It was a prayer of Moses recorded by the psalmist, passed down by generations through Israel, apparently. You've been our dwelling place in all generations. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There it captures it. God is without beginning or end. That's what Moses declared. And Moses had seen God, as it were, as nearly face to face as someone could. He'd been on the mountain. He was the one to whom God said, I am that I am. I am the timeless God. I'm not an I was God. I'm not a becoming God. I'm not an I will be God. I'm not a might be God. I'm not a could be God. I'm not a wished for God. I'm not a used to be God. I am God, he told Moses. Moses understood that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, Moses said, if you take eternity, it's an endless ribbon in, every, in, in both directions. It, it is an endless quality that we put into our little minds, and we call it the past. Well, it goes beyond the past. It's not contained by the past. That's what we as earthbound people can only think in. We can only think in terms of time. We're finite people. We think of the past, and we can take the past out, as our scientists try to do, millions and millions and millions of years, right? But there's still a beginning point, science tells us. We still get to an end of the past, God says, oh no, I'm from everlasting. And in fact, if you can conceive in your human mind as far back as you can go into the past, I'm there and I have always been. You go into the future. Again, we can only go out so far as our imaginations can take us and as what we call the laws of physics will allow us. And there's an end point there of some kind. And Moses said, from everlasting in the past, too everlasting into your concept of the future. God blows the doors out on that and he is there in his perfections as, and he will, he will always be there. He will never end. He has no beginning and no end. He was before creation and created matter, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth. In Moses' experience of life, the mountains were the grandest and the oldest aspect of the earth that he walked on. They were the most timeless pieces of creation. Riverbeds changed. Hillsides changed. But the mountains were the greatest illustration that he could come up with of changelessness and timelessness. And he said, before they were, uh, were created, you have always been. You could put it this way. Moses is saying that God, he was saying, oh God, you are before, before, and after, after. I'm getting back down to my neighborhood of that simple language. Timeless God. Now, the text that I asked to be read in our hearing uh, by Bruce was asked intentionally, Revelation 1a. 
And the very, very final aspect of his revelation to the church, he says in Revelation 1a, this is God Almighty speaking of himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What are the Alpha and the Omega? Again, that's a human construct. The Alpha was the first letter of the Greek language, of the Koine Greek, in which Revelation was written and in which the people of that time in the churches conversed. And Omega was the final letter. So what is he saying? I am the beginning and the end. I, I cover time. I stand outside it. I dominate it. When the beginning was there, I was already there. Genesis 1.1. Remember class in your exercise. And at the end of everything you can imagine, you'll find me standing there, changeless. I am, again, the name of God when he came to Moses. I am the self-existent God. When God says I am, it means he is and has always been. He needs nothing. He needs no one. And nothing affects him or alters him. I am. I have always been the perfect everlasting, eternal God. He goes on. Not only am am I the Alpha and the Omega, he's putting his greatness into our language, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm Almighty at every point in time. I stand in the present. I also, in all that I am, still stand in the past. And I will stand into the future. I am the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. I'm not a becoming God. I'm not a possible God as some theologians teach today. Even evangelical theologians, some evangelicals teach that God is still becoming himself. He's, he's, he's growing. <laughs> he's limited in his knowledge of certain things. But he is beginning to grow in his understanding of certain other things. He's aware of some things that happen in your life, but other things are just as much a surprise to him as they are to you. No, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. I'm not becoming, I am. I'm not... I'm not evolving, I am. I'm not possibilities, I am. Who was... And who is to come. And before the before and after the after. In other words, he's timeless. Remember that. Understand it. Timeless not in the sense that he's a classic. <laughs> That's what we think timeless means. We're so, it means time has no effect on him. Time does not limit him. Time does not contain him. He's, he's timeless. He's above it. Yet he works within it, as we're going to see in a minute. He's always been. In my younger years, some of the, 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 the atheistic teaching that shaped me was, was authored by people like Frederick Nietzsche and others who, who became famous for stating that science has now given us the ability to say, remember the Time magazine cover in 1966? Of course, none of you do, but it was, it was a landmark thing, and it, it said, God is dead. First cover on Time magazine that didn't have a human being's picture on it. It just had three stark words in red, God is dead. And that influenced a whole generation to believe that science has now progressed to the point where we can declare that God is dead. Interestingly enough, the scientists that were quoted in that article later said, we have come, come to the conclusive conclusion that God is dead. Science now explains everything we needed God for. But the crazy thing is, we still have people coming to us all the time asking us questions about... God. I thought that was kind of humorous. No, it's a philosophical impossibility that God could ever be dead because he's not limited by time or physical existence. And he's not just an idea, he's a person. He did not come to Moses and said, welcome, I'm the great possibility. He said, I am. The Bible teaches us that God is the theologians call it, it's his aseity, it, it, it's, it's his isness. It means he doesn't need anything to be. And he never had a beginning, therefore he could never be dead. 
So the whole philosophical construct collapses on itself, not to mention what the Bible declares about God. Your God may die, mine won't. Because mine never had a beginning. He's not dependent on physical existence. And he, he's, he's completely real and, and existing in himself. Anyway, that's for free. It just, if, if you've ever struggled with the fact that God is just an idea. Maybe you're here today and you're exploring Christianity and you wonder, can I believe in this idea that these Christians call God? No, you can't. An idea won't save you. An idea won't transform you. And an idea cannot assure your eternity. A person can. An eternal, ageless being can. God's not an idea. He's real. He's, an, he's a person. He's as personal as you are because he created you, according to Genesis 2, in his image. He's as real a person as you are and then some. The eternal God, he's without beginning or end, Revelation tells us, Moses declared. Now, just some illustrations about all this. The second question, what does this mean? Get, get, to, get to maybe some, some ways that I can put some weight to this or some understandings. I've looked at a lot of different people over the years, and one of the people that I came across, Richard Strauss, uh, uh, author and pastor, Bible teacher of years past, kind of put it into the, like my wheelhouse, simple. And he said, think about conversations that you might have with children when you come to the idea of God who is without beginning or end. Uh, a lot of children will come to me, he writes, and ask, where did God come from? And we had this conversation if you're an Awana leader or whatever, or a parent. We've all been taught to believe that everything comes from someplace. Every physical object has a maker. Every effect has a cause. Somebody made my watch, even though you're convinced that this one doesn't work. Anyway, that was a little preaching joke. Didn't go very far. Anyway, somebody built this building. In fact, some of you who helped build this building are still here today. So we know that every effect has a cause. Humanly speaking, somebody was even responsible for bringing me into existence, a man and a woman I call my father and mother, and he wrote the same thing about himself. We teach our children from their earliest days of understanding that the ultimate builder and maker of all things is God. He created the universe of which every other tangible thing we know about is a part. But the next question that will come to a child's mind, and maybe yours, is a natural one. You're kind of set up for it. You really can't help yourself from answer, asking the question, well then, who made God? If all things came from God, well, then who made God? Now, the answer is difficult for them to accept, whether it's a child asking it or an adult. They have no frame of reference to which they can relate to. If they've never heard an answer like it before, it'll leave them puzzled and confused at first, but there is no other possible explanation. The answer is nobody made God, right? He always was. Thanks for completing the sentence. Now you're getting it. You see, the Bible itself never tries to prove his existence or explain where he came from. He writes, it merely assumes that he is there and that he has always been there. He had no beginning. Remember our Genesis 1-1 activity class, God and beginnings, he didn't have one. When we open the first page of the Bible, we read simply, in the beginning, God, he's just there, and look at what he's doing, creating the heavens and the earth. He existed before all things, and he himself brought everything else into existence. If anybody existed before God and was responsible for making God, then he would be God. That's an interesting assumption. That, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? And, he would and we would have to begin our questioning all over again with the question, well, then who made him? <laughs> so you see... In our limited mindsets, it does begin to make sense. To deny this is what has been called the proud man's problem. And this is where Nietzsche and, and the others came in who wanted to declare that science has replaced God. The proud man's problem is that he cannot fully accept that there's something outside of his ability to understand. Some philosophers and scientists reject an eternal self-existent God because they can't put him in a test tube and examine him or explain all his ways. But that's just, that's just a dodge. It's a subterfuge. If they could examine him scientifically or explain him fully, then what would that prove? That he's not God after all because they were able to limit him and explain him fully. By his own definition, God cannot be fully defined and explained. This is why we have a Bible that reveals him in part. 
and we have an eternity that we'll look forward to as Christians where we discover more of him in total. But you can't even use the word total to describe an infinite God. Can you? Isn't heaven going to be awesome? Our discoveries of who he is will never end. I'm telling you. I want to go. Their major problem is pride. Those that, and I, and I can understand, I can relate to it, to believe in an eternal, self-existent, uncaused cause what, what, would force them to admit that they owe their existence to that uncaused cause. And that's where the, it's the proud man's problem. The scientist, the philosopher, the atheist, it's the atheist's unmitted, unadmitted attitude that to admit that an eternal, self-existent, uncaused cause called God exists means that I am dependent on him and I have to answer to him and I have to respond to him and I can no longer write the terms of what existence is all about. And I'm dependent on him for everything right down to life and breath itself. It's, it's it, to the egotistical, self-sufficient, darkened heart of man. That's an unacceptable proposition. And that's why to understand how to have a relationship with God, to humble yourself and come to God through Christ, means you have to accept that God is God and you're not. It starts with accepting that he exists on his own terms and he comes to you with his own truth and and you don't get to call the shots and you begin to admit that. What's that called? Repentance. It's called the, the, the awareness of sin, my limitations, my need of God, and that's critical to conversion. You really don't know him without it. It's the only possible answer and it's the proud man's problem. It's a remarkable thing to understand. The good news, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that the God who has no beginning also has no end. He's not only from everlasting, Moses said, but to everlasting. And that means that, that he is able to bring into existence other things that are everlasting that will have no end. That's what he created you for. You realize you're an everlasting being? This is interesting. Our whole secular society wants to tell you otherwise. That's why they destroy the creation narrative in the Bible. Even people that want to hold on to Christian faith say they supplant creation with evolution. When you do that, you've devastated the nature and identity of who people are. And you've trapped yourself in the creation and you've simply become an evolutionary being. That's finite. God said he created you and he breathed into you the breath of life. He created you, Genesis said, a living soul. What is a soul? It's not time bound. The physical body is, but the soul is you, is everlasting. You will go on into eternity future. That's good news if you know him. Because you're going to go into a heaven that God has now created for you and the angels. And that's great news for believers. You're going to enter into an everlasting life someday. But that's certainly not good news if you're a non-believer because you have an everlasting soul and there is another everlasting place that God has created for those that reject his love in Christ. It was originally designed for the devil and his angels, but it is a place of eternal fire, Matthew 25, of torment day and night forever, everlastingly, Revelation 20, verse 10. It is a place where an everlasting God has to exert everlasting justice. Isn't that true? If he's an eternal God, he's been eternally offended by my sin. That's why the Bible says he is angry with the wicked all day long. And that day never ends for God. And so I will pay an eternal price someday if I reject him in an eternal place. He's designed for my eternal responsibility. It's everlasting. It will not end. And I've been created with a soul that will not end. The only thing that changes is that on resurrection day, I'll be given a physical body to equip me to suffer physically as well as soulishly in an everlasting way. You do not want to face that certainty without Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. The eternal nature of God is comfort to the Christian. Oh, but it is a disturbing reality for those that have reje rejected Jesus. You see, there's a difference between, between being immortal and being eternal. This is an important distinction. Warren Wiersbe, in his work on this, said there's a difference between being immortal and being eternal. All human beings are immortal. That is, their soul will never die. 
But God is eternal. He has neither beginning nor end. I'm immortal even though I had a beginning in time. I'm never going to have an end. He's eternal. He's above all of that. Never had that beginning. And he can govern the affairs of my everlasting future the way he desires to. Why does it matter that God is without beginning or end? Well, because it means that heaven just might be real. If he's everlasting, and he says he's created an everlasting place for me, he's the only one that could ever create that place. I might imagine it. He's outside of time, so he's already created it. It exists in a different domain of reality outside time and space, and I'm going there. And so I accept that by faith. I don't understand everything about heaven, but I understand he's eternal enough to already created it. It exists already. And many of you are now at the point in life where you think you know more people in heaven than you do on earth because you've lost some folks. He's an eternal God. He's already created heaven. It's outside us, outside of time and space as we know it, but it's as real as real is. Here's the second and the close. Eternal God not only exists, uh, is without beginning or end, but the second thing I wanted to tell you is he exists outside of time, but also works within it. He, can, he exists outside of time, but he can also work within it. Where does the scripture say this? Back to Psalm 90, and in verse 4, Moses, in his prayer, he said, not only are you from everlasting to everlasting God, verse 2, he says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What? How does that work? Again, this is where we can't create this understanding. We have to receive it. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.8, put it this way. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Again, Again, timeless. He's outside of time. It doesn't affect him. It doesn't limit him. He sees it all at the same time. Now, how do you put this into language? Let me, let me just borrow it. One author put it this way, time is duration measured by succession. That's true. You know, time is, is something that passes, and we have little measures. We, have, we, we call them hours and moments and seconds and days and months and years. That's it. We've got five or six little measures of succession, and that's the, that's the world we live in. Time is duration measured by succession. When author wrote, for convenience, we speak of eternity past and eternity future, but in actuality, eternity supersedes time. It's a mode of existence that's not bound by successive moments. There are no such things as past, present, and future with God. He created time, and he can work within its framework, but he himself is over and above it. He lives in one eternal now. Our tomorrows are just as real and present to him as our yesterdays and our and todays because he's already experienced them. Whoa! I can understand God experiencing my past, and I guess he's experiencing my present in a lot bigger way than I am. He knows more things. He knows all things. So he's experiencing everything in my present that I don't even know. But he, he's already been in my future. He has to have been because he's timeless. He's over it all at the very, from what we would say, at the same time. And we're wrong. He's simply over all experience and all existence. I'm glad he understands my tomorrows. And he's, he was there because my regrets, well, they, they go to the cross. I'm glad he's aware of my todays because he knows my needs. And I'm glad he's already been through my tomorrows because uh, all my anxieties and my worries, he's got an answer for that. You may have heard the, the definition by some thinker, I don't know who it was, who said time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. No, it isn't. Time is actually a gracious invention of God. The scripture says he existed from everlasting. He existed eternally, and time didn't exist. But God put time into place. He created it for our benefit. 
It's a state he created. Why? Because he wanted a stage to show forth his glory and to fulfill his pleasure. Why were you created? Were you created because God needed a relationship? No, he's perfect in himself. Were you created because God needed something to do? No, he's perfect in himself. Were you created for any other philosophical reason? No, you were created simply because it pleased God. And it brought him glory. Why were you saved? Because it pleased God. And it brought him glory. God wanted to create a context that pleased him and that brought him glory. And it, and it, it was a one in which he decided to create all that we know as creation and to place his image bearers in it and to send his son to a cross to save them because it pleased him and it gives him glory. And he needed a stage on which all of that would play itself out and that's the stage of time and space. God doesn't need time. Never needed time. He created time and space and then he created you as a stage upon which his glory rolls out and his pleasure is fulfilled. It's the only state in which anything other than he could exist. Anything else needed a stage of time and space, angel, animal, or man. And so that's the nature of time. We're all obsessed. We want to manage it and measure it and stop it and change it and travel it and warp it and forget it. We can't do anything to time. Proverbs says you can't change one ounce of your experience or one moment in your life. No, he created it as something that he is above. He sees it all equally vividly, and that's why the Bible says a thousand years and you're in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, Moses said. A, thousand, a day is as a thousand years, Peter said, and a thousand years is as one day. He's not limited by it. He looks down at all of it at the same time. That's why Tozer said he lives in one continuous now. I don't understand that. I can't explain it. Sorry, I've got no chipper little, uh, little cliff notes on this one. I don't understand why how he, he can see all events equally vividly in time, even though they're distantly past or they haven't occurred yet. He's above it all. He sees it all. The creation eons ago or thousands of years ago at any rate probably was was a finished fact in our minds in our creation time-space continuum. God's still there at the moment of creation. He saw it happen, but he still sees it. The life of his son on this earth, he sent his son, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. God entered time and sent his son. Jesus came. Jesus went to that cross. God the Father saw it and called it good, but he still sees it. He's still as, as, as there as there could be. Wherever you happen to be on March 6, 2019, just to pick a date out of the air, you can't even remember. He saw it, and he's there right now. I don't understand that. Thank God he's a good God. The final judgment yet to come when all men and women are raised and stand before him at the great white throne. I don't know when that's going to happen. God does, and he sees it already, and he's already there. It's breathtaking, isn't it? C.S. Lewis tried to explain it this way. To define eternity in time, just think of a long piece of paper that's extended like this on a wall before you, if you will, and it goes infinitely in either direction from the infinite past, but no, it passed as a limiter. So it's, it's infinitely going that direction and then infinitely going in this direction. And then he said, just pick up a pen and in the middle of that somewhere, draw a six-inch line. That's time. And God can write within that line whatever he desires. What did he desire to do? He decided to write the story of his glory and the creation of image bearers and the the great disaster of human sin to write the beautiful story of a Savior right in the middle of that line. And he wrote the story of Jesus. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. And now he's writing the story of you coming to know his son. 
And that story, <laughs> well, the illustration falls apart in a way because when time ends, it's got an eternal future to it. Do you want to be part of that eternal future? Come to know Jesus. Come to know Jesus. Well, that's where the scripture describes it. And what does it mean? Well, it means that God can predict the future. That's why prophecy is so powerful. You ever think about why Bible prophecy is true? Because he's already been there. You worried about the events that are happening around the world, whether it's war in Ukraine or possible war in China or economic collapse or shortages or opposition to the faith in this country or whatever? Don't worry, he's already there. He's already set what's going to happen. He's already ordained how he's going to be present with you, and he's already gaining his glory. It's all part of a timeless God's infinite plan for the future. He's already there. So the last question, and I close with this, is why does this matter? Why does it matter that God exists outside of time but can work within it? Well, one practical thing, other than the mighty, wonderful story of salvation that I just shared with you, what God decided to write on the little line of time is the story of your creation and your salvation, all hinging on the life of his son. But in your everyday world, here's something to close with, as if that's not great enough. It means that in your everyday world today, there's not going to be any surprises because there are no surprises with God. If he's outside of time, if he's already ordained all that is to come to pass, there are no surprises with him. You might be worried today. You might be going over and over your mind all kinds of ways to create an escape hatch for something that just came up in your life that really scares you. You might be thinking about a loved one in your life who's taken yet another wrong step and whose future is darkening, a child, a grandchild, a daughter, a son, and you're worrying and you're fretting. I go back to Richard Strauss as I close. He put it this way. The timelessness of God is a truth for believers to rest in because this God knows all our tomorrows and therefore there are no surprises with him. We may experience a great many surprises in life, but there are none with God. He already knows the pleasures that are in store for us. He knows the tragedies we shall face. He even knows the sins we shall commit and he's already grieved over them. But he has a plan that will work them all together for good. Knowing a God like that not only helps us want to please him, but it helps us face our future with confidence and courage. A timeless God is going to be there tomorrow, whatever it holds. With the next page of our lives open, ready to reveal the next step he wants us to take, in the perfect plan he has arranged for us all. Mm -hmm.